Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-339 of the Run Run Live podcast. It's been an interesting couple of weeks, but we managed to rise above all our challenges and pull off an interesting and compelling show just for you. This week I've got an interview with Tony Mangan, who, last time I checked on Facebook, was in Russia somewhere, 2,000-odd kilometers into his walk around the world. So Tony is slash was an accomplished ultra runner and then decided to run around the world. And he did. It took him four years, but when he got home, he was still restless. So he set off again, this time at a slower pace on an alternate route. This is basically his life now, it seems. Perambulation of the globe. I was asked last week if what would I do if I didn't have to work, if I could do anything I wanted and money was no object? And my answer was probably just start running, <laughs> run across the U.S. or something. There's something about that that appeals to me. Not not the effort or the accomplishment or the challenge. What appeals to me is the monastic clarity of it. How's my running going, you may ask? Well, that's an interesting question. I actually took seven days off. What? Shocked? Yeah. I said it had been an interesting couple weeks, didn't I? Took seven days off. It started about two weeks ago. On that Thursday, I got a cold sore and a slight fever, and I thought, okay, it's some sort of, you know, it's one of those seasonal allergy symptom things, and I really didn't think more about it because, as you know, I don't get sick. Big waste of time getting sick. No reason for it. No reason at all. It didn't get any worse, and Saturday I spent a fabulous long day working in my yard and got so much done, I was on a roll, and Sunday I woke up to get my long run in and noticed that my heart rate was pretty high, and I didn't feel so hot. But I went out and knocked out a couple low-energy hours of running anyhow, but knew something was going on. I felt progressively worse all day Sunday, and when the early alarm went off to jump on a plane Monday morning, I couldn't do it. I was too sick, which kills me. I usually go to work if I can still fog a mirror. I ended up sitting in on my <laughs> three days of 10-hour-long meetings by phone, 
Uh, it was the right decision. I don't know why I struggle with that so much. Monday night, I had the chills and the fever sweats, and I was awake coughing all night most nights that week. I slept on the couch all week, sitting up to let the rest of my family get some sleep. And by the end of the week, it had moved up into my sinus, and I was in some discomfort. But still, I'm like, yeah, it's a cold. It's allergies. It's something. My wife and daughter started to uh, bug me. They said, go see the doctor. And I hesitate because, hey, it's a cold. All they're going to tell me to do is go home, you know, sleep more, take fluids. Why waste my time and theirs? I finally relented Saturday morning, more than a week into it by then. The nice nurse practitioner, Duncan, took my vitals and was giggly at how good shape I'm in for an old guy. But he said... Given your baseline, this is totally out of whack. You either have acute sinusitis or pneumonia, and we need to get you on antibiotics. Oh, okay. So, now I'm four or five days into the drugs and it's clearing up. Meanwhile, I'm supposed to be speaking at a conference in New Orleans this week on Monday. And I was speaking as a favor to an old friend of mine, Dan, who lives in Chicago, and Dan and I chewed some dirt together back in the 90s, career-wise, and we always got along famously. I ghost-wrote some of his first book, and we were peers from the same cadre, and he was about my age, maybe a little bit older. And the last time I talked to Dan, he was pretty sick. He had some problems with diabetes and had to get a couple toes removed, I think. And I asked him, geez, Dan, how does something like this happen? And he joked back to me, too much rich food, Chris. Bad lifestyle decisions. And much to my shock, last week, before I left for New Orleans, I got a note from the conference, I think it was Friday morning, that Dan had passed away. So this week, while I was speaking at his conference in New Orleans, they were having services for my friend Dan in Chicago. So summary, weird couple weeks. I'm going to give you something a bit different format-wise today. We'll drop into our chat with Tony right off the bat, and then I'll lay my Boston Marathon story on the back end of that. I'll hit you with some closing comments at the very far back end, but fair warning, last time I checked, my Boston story was over 5,500 words and counting. I recorded it last week, sort of a draft try, but I'm going to re-record it because my voice was just painful. It was painful to listen to. Remember, there's now a membership option for Run Run Live. And with special members-only content. And my goal is to get one piece of unique audio out every week. And this past week, members were treated to my uncomfortably contorted, sick-of-voice rendition of the business podcast that I listen to and why. So, yes, for the price of one Czechoslovakian hockey puck, you can sign up to be a member of the Run Run Live podcast and get further access to the audio bestiary. When you have a weird week like the one I had, it can cause you to take pause. If you've got unfinished business to attend to in your life, for heaven's sakes, get to it. Don't put it off. Don't put off the things you need to do and the things you need to say. And remember, the small decisions you make on your healthy lifestyle, they add up over time, so don't put those off either. I'll share a less dramatic story from a couple weeks ago after the Boston Marathon. So I'm in my office, 
it's like the week after the marathon, and Coach has me not running much, but has me doing yoga and stuff. And I work out of a remote office, and many times I'm the only one there. It's a real office. I have a real old-style office with walls and a window and a solid wooden door that locks. Hey, I'm an executive. So I decided to do the yoga in my office. No one is there, and it saves me from having to walk over to the gym. And I can use the Wi-Fi in the office to play Bonnie's videos on my tablet. It's all good. So I change into my workout stuff, which just happens to be short shorts and a singlet, you know, barefoot, right? And I'm sitting on the floor in my approximation of the lotus position, and there's a knock at the door. And it's some unfortunate young guy peering around the corner who has come to service our water cooler. And there I am, like some strange half-naked yogi on the floor of my office. Uh, so I explained to him what was going on. He got a kick out of it, and he was all interested in my my hardware and all my running paraphernalia that decorates my walls, all in good fun. And, he, oh yeah, I shaved my beard last week, too. On with the show. And now for today's featured interview. Tony, so you're in Poland. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah. My name's Tony Mangan. I, I, I have to hesitate because I don't know if I'm an extreme runner or an extreme walker at this stage. I was um, an ultra runner, and I kind of retired from it after the ultimate experience of running around the world. So w when I was younger, and I got the idea at first um, to run around the world, I didn't quite know how it would be done. That was um, about 25 years ago, before jogging strollers, before the technology that we have now, GPS and all of that. And I just said to myself, well, maybe if I put a backpack on, it'd be much easier. So eventually things changed and I eventually ran around the world. And so I got home, wrote the book and said, what will I do now? Twiddling my thumbs, what will I do now? And I said, well, what about the plan B dream? The one that you couldn't make up your mind with. So that's where I am now. I only decided at Christmas I'd set out to walk around the world. So two months later, I actually set out a month late. So I'm more or less halfway across Europe in Poland. Yeah, so is the cadence the same in terms of when you were running around the world, you were doing about uh, about a marathon a day, right? Yeah, um, I, I actually averaged about 27 miles, 43 point something kilometers. And I'm, I'm not quite doing the same, even though I was running pretty slow towards the end of my world run. It's a difference of a kilometer, say half a mile per hour over a long day can be one or two or three hours even, depending on how long right. the day is. So I'm still finding my feet, believe it or not. Um, I have about 880 miles, about 1,400 kilometers. And I started off fairly slow. So I'm building up now. I'm up to a marathon and 28 miles or so now, averaging. Um, today is only my second rest day since I began in about eight weeks ago. So I'm building up, as I said, I started slow. So it's hard to talk about what I'm averaging because I'm only starting and I'm building up. But it's a three-year expedition, about a thousand road days. Yeah, so your um, your world run was four years, right? And you did about, what, 50,000 kilometers? Yeah, I did exactly 50,000 kilometers on the nose. Because when you're actually running or walking around the world, you, you do have a lot of time to think. And the further I went into the run, actually, I was in the Turkish mountains and I said to myself, 
how about finishing with a lap of Ireland? So, so that's what I did. And then I said, how about finishing with exactly 50,000 kilometers? So the, I started and finished with my city marathon in Dublin. And the, so the, the final footstep at the finish line was 50,000 kilometers. I reckon this is going to be somewhere in the region of 34,000 kilometers, about 21,000 miles or so. I still haven't finalized the route. A lot of people wonder about that, but there's no point in me planning a route that's a year or two ahead. Things change. It depends on my pace. Right now, I'm trying to keep going a marathon a day for the next five and a half months because I want to escape the Mongolian winter. From here, I'm going to Russia, into Mongolia, and then into China. It'll be about five months across, uh, about halfway across Russia when I head south to Mongolia. So Mongolian winters are pretty cold, so I also want to get the time frame right for getting to Australia, because um, after China, then it's down to Australia. It's a little bit warmer when you get to Australia. Yes, yeah, so I'm planning to be there around about this time next year, maybe March, April, and from Perth to Sydney is, is the plan for Australia. Then New Zealand, probably come back to Asia, Japan, Korea, and then um, at the moment the plan is to, to go to somewhere like Seattle or Portland and across the states. So I used to live in Colorado, so unfortunately that's a big dip down. I'll probably dip down all right, and then I want to go back up again and have some very good ultra-running friends in, in New York, John Giesler, and then eventually I want to go down to Florida. So I'm going to spend a lot of time in the States, probably about eight, nine months. I was looking at your uh, Runner's Road article um, for your World Run. That was a, a pretty good piece they did for you. Yeah, it's, it's, on, it's on my it, website, worldjog.com. Yeah, I've interviewed a lot of people who do these sort of run across the States and run across England sort of thing, and there tends to be a sort of an energy curve to it where they, they start out with a lot of energy and then it gets hard for a while and then their body figures it out and it gets sort of just a work-a-day sort of thing towards the end. But, I mean, across four years... I mean, what was your, you know, running a marathon a day plus across four years, what's your energy curve? To be honest with you, I started off pretty light, something like 150 pounds, um, 68 kilos. I didn't have a lot of weight to start. Probably it was might have been a mistake that I didn't bulk up in the gym and eat junk food and whatever. So it, I was wasting away as I was running. And, and then another problem I had was there was a lot of places I couldn't get sufficient nutrition on the road um, with a backpack going over the Andes in somewhere like Peru or Bolivia. There's not a lot of places to get sufficient food. In Bolivia, there was tiny meals and just one ice cube size of meat. And um, so it was, it was pretty frustrating. Uh, my energy levels did drop and, and I, I actually got injured with about a year to go with a bit of a limp. So I literally limped to the finish line, and I probably haven't recovered from that, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm still not 100%, but I'm walking and I'm pushing my stroller just in comparison to the world run. It's literally a stroll. Yeah. You were an accomplished ultra runner before this, you know, with the 100 milers, 200 milers, 24-hour, 48-hour sort of runs. So you know about the mental and the physical dark place that you can get to in the middle of those kind of runs. You know, you had that going in, that experience. Yeah. Uh, did that Did that help? <laughs> it, it, it actually did, to be honest with you. Um, one of the reasons I started my world run late, I was 53, I think it was, when I started, because I had a, a fairly successful competitive career. I managed to set a lot of records. 
And I still say to this day, I was no special athlete. Um, I was just a regular runner that was, I was actually bullied in school. I was a sports wimp, but my mind was very strong. I don't really know how it was strong, but it was exceptionally strong. And I was able to tap into extra energy levels that a lot of other runners don't seem to be able to do. So I did notice that um, I, was, I was not pretty, I was not good at, if you check out my, my times, I was no good at 100k or anything like that. It was when I get to 24 hours, even 24 hours was not staggering. Um, it was 48 hours, so that the further I went, the stronger I seemed to become. And it was because my mind was really strong um, another thing I, I have to my advantage is I'm single I've no commitments and because the number one advice I gave to other runners was if you want to do something make it the most important thing in your life and so many other people said to me but I'm married I've kids and I said well make it the most important thing in your life that's probably why I'm single that obviously is a question people would have right how do you do all this and have a relationship and the answer is you don't right <laughs> yeah 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 unless you bring your wife with you but it must, I, you know, walking across the world, running around the world, I would say that the best part of that would be the day in, day out, surprising interactions you're going to have with other people and other places, right? Absolutely. You must have had just some amazing interactions, some amazing epiphanies where you wake up in some special place. Oh, there were so many. There were so many. For example, just, just running along. I remember one particular day in Indonesia, I was running through one of the islands and there was a sudden downpour of rain and I was in the middle of nowhere and this this lady just brought me into her home and there was absolutely nothing in the house no furniture so I just sat down on the mat and she looked at me and I looked at her and I, I actually had business cards printed with the Google Translate and, and I handed them out so she could see what I was doing and just countless experiences like that, um, running over trails in Peru and being invited into people's homes. I was told many times I was told I was the first Westerner that people had seen. And as you can imagine, it's pretty difficult for these people just to survive. Poor people without the added extra energy expenditure of running, people couldn't quite get their head around it to be honest with you but that's this is the advantage of not of going solo not having a support crew um, because if i went into somebody's house they offered me a cup of tea first thing i'd be wondering is well, well what about the support vehicle if it's going by how are they going to see me even now walking across poland on, on my world walk every day there's people stopping me saying come in have a cup of tea um i rarely have to pay for anything people are wonderful all over the world yeah and this could be a very expensive trip if you were to you know try to get support and sponsorship and all that stuff but if you just you know it just kind of shows that you can go out and just decide to walk and you can do it it doesn't well, it doesn't have to be that expensive well, to be, to be honest with you, an expedition like this, including my, my, my four-year world run, wouldn't cost any more than a car. Not very expensive. What a lot of people don't realize is, is I could spend two weeks going from one city to another. And a lot of the time, even if I wanted to spend money, if I was a millionaire, there, would, there probably wouldn't be very much. A lot of backpackers, for instance, if they're going from um, Warsaw to Prague, first thing they have to do is they have to, to pay for their, their transportation. When they arrive in Prague, they have to pay for accommodation. More than likely to go out and to have meals. But if I'm on foot, I just camp in the forest. There's uh, many days I've just spent 2 $3 a day. Yeah. 
As long as, long as you're willing to uh, just live off the land, right? Yeah, and stay out of the nightclubs. Uh. <laughs> so mentally, what's this do to you or for you? Because you must have these immense periods of solitude. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, except for going through India and cars driving me into ditches and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I've wor- I've worked in India. I, I I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. The lorries it, on the wrong side of the yeah. road. Sure. I I was actually running uh, on my road run. I was running through the um, the most volatile part of it, for all the way from the border at Myanmar uh, through areas where that's um, the separatists are looking for independence, and there's a lot of violence and. It was it was pretty pretty scary at times, and um, not to mention the driving. I've never been to the south down in Mumbai, but it almost seems like a different country. It's it's affluent and cosmopolitan from what I can hear. But solitude, yes, there are days there are days when I'm just having the same thoughts over and over and over again, and you can almost run out of things to think about because you can only think of so much about your relationship, what you're going to write in the blog. Often I have my blog written in my head. Sometimes you might have a thought and it's say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll save that thought for tomorrow. You don't want to use up all my thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 be, I, I seem to be enjoying the world walk more than my world run, to be honest with you. It's less intense. There's nothing worse than having to run in a marathon or even um, as a journey runner when you're absolutely shattered. But walking is, is just like a breath of fresh air, to be honest with you. I talk to people, whistle at the girls, whatever, and uh, it's a lot of fun. You're going in the opposite direction this time? Is yeah. that what I see? Yeah, that's, that's right. I'm heading out east across Asia, from Poland into Russia, Lithuania, Latvia, and then back to Russia again. There's a part of Russia that's disconnected that not many people realize, surrounded by the European Union. I'll be there in about two days. And then from Russia to Mongolia. I'm going to go from north to south through Ulaanbaatar into, into China and through China, more than likely down to Hong Kong. So I say, I haven't actually finalized the end of my Asian route, it depends on my pace. I might go down to Cambodia. After there, the next step is down to um, Perth in Australia. So the plan for Australia is across the Nullarbor from Perth down um, to Sydney and New Zealand, South Island first, the North Island, and then back to Japan, possibly Korea, I'm not 100% certain, and then to the west coast of the USA from Portland or thereabouts down to Colorado and back up to New York and down to Florida. And from Hmm. Florida, then I want to go back to Europe, to um, Portugal, Spain, France, and get back to Ireland and finish with a full 1,000-mile lap of Ireland. That's my plan. Three years this time. So it's, it's, it's going well. So far, so you're you change your route, so you're picking up some some new countries uh, this time around. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, Lithuania and Latvia will be my first two new countries on this, and then after that, China, Mongolia. I don't have too many new countries. I'm fairly well traveled, but it, it's it's completely different. There's not too many quote unquote dangerous countries this time. Russia is one of the most hospitable countries in the world. China is not too bad. I hear it's a little bit like India. A lot of people pester you, but it's kind of innocence. They don't mean any harm. Mongolia, just about every backpacker seems to be fascinated by, so I'm really looking forward to going there. 
and Japan is a country that I've always wanted to go to. So Australia, I'd be taking a different route this time going across the Nullarbor. And my world run, I went through the centre from Melbourne after Tasmania to Melbourne to Darwin, uh, sorry, to Alice Springs to Darwin. And then New Zealand is probably the only part of my, my uh, walk that's the same as what I did before. Other than that, it's, it's more or less a completely different route. Yeah, you had to go through some, uh, you went through the Middle East last time you went through, right? Uh, yeah, I uh, went through Iran. Iran is uh, is an incredible country. The people, I know the government get a lot of bad press and rightly so, but the government is screwed up. But the people are the most genuine, wonderful people you can meet anywhere. Actually, the, the United States and Iran were my two favorite countries on my world run. Uh, everywhere I went in Iran, people just, what they love to drink their tea. And I love my tea also, so they just kept stopping me. Tea, 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 more tea. And they, they are wonderful people. I love Iran. Uh, it was pretty much a desert country. So I, I have these things going on in my head and about women's rights, to be honest with you. This is one thing that's kind of knocking my head, uh, running through these countries. And also parts of South America as well, where women are culturally um, culturally excluded from things like driving and um so what I do have to kind of keep that separate, um, but it's a bit hard. It's a bit hard. Yeah, yeah, you have to focus on the commonalities. Exactly. So I have to be professional, for want of a better way of putting it. Yeah, you're right. Rather yeah, than emotional. Actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You have to uh, what they call um, be. Um, you have to disconnect or uh, yeah. separate yourself there. But the you know one thing I found I've traveled a, a lot, certainly not as much as you, and certainly not on the ground like you, but. One of the things I, I think I've found is that people are basically the same wherever you go, right? I mean, the, the context is different, but the you know what they're thinking about and what they're doing and, and how they're interacting is, is kind of the same world round. Absolutely. All over the world, that's, that's what I see. Uh, people are wonderful all over the world. I don't think I've ever been to a country, and I've been to probably about 90 countries in my life. Uh, I don't think I've ever been to a country where... People were not hospitable. So for your average Jill or Joe in the EU or in the U.S., Tony, who would, you know, has got the itch to go out and do a walkabout, you know, what would you, uh, what would you advise? Just do it. Don't wait. Just do it. Yeah, I, I um, waited 25 years before I went out to run around the world. And now I wish I actually I told you earlier on the interview uh, I mentioned that um, I had this will I run will I walk I wish I would have just went out and walked uh, at the time uh, just do it don't wait twenty odd years uh, because most people's lives change their circumstances change get hitched or whatever find a way to do it if you really really want to do something you'll do it yeah that's good advice so start now yeah. Yeah, now, right now I'm, I'm pretty beat up. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm 59, actually today is my birthday, so I'm 59 today. And uh, I'm pretty beat up, but I'll be fine. Yeah, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, good luck with all this. So you, you've you written down your adventures in a couple of books, but they're not out on the market yet? Is that my understanding? Well, yeah, um, I, I don't have a publisher. I wrote two books, believe it or not, uh, one with the start and, and all of the Americas, all the way uh, from New Newfoundland in, in Canada down to Tierra del Fuego in the very south of South America. It's 25,000 kilometers, exactly half of the run in, in distance, uh, about 16,000 miles, I think. And um, 
that's uh, 125,000 words, and it's a lot of, for example, as I mentioned earlier on, going into uh, meeting people in farms in the United States around food blizzards and people inviting me into their homes, um, going through down the highway, and I arrived in a town, people didn't quite know where I was up to, and I was pushing a cart with my baggage, and a lot of people thought it was a trap. So um, I, I wrote a, that was the first part, and I'm going to call the book The Irish Man Who Ran Around the World. That's part one. Part two is about 95,000 words, and that's New Zealand, Australia, Asia, all the way across Europe, and and the lap of Ireland finishing with the final footstep on my city marathon. Um, I, I don't have a publisher. I don't really have the energy to go around looking for publishers. I'm not very good at marketing myself, I guess. Otherwise, I, I'm sure somebody would be knocking on my door. So you should just uh, self-publish that then, yeah, put it up was, as uh, uh, an was, Amazon Kindle book. I, I was thinking about it, and um, as I say, I have it all. I have it all saved, and uh, it's only a matter of probably doing about a week's just arranging, sorting the chapters, um, and 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 getting it ready for for publishing. I was I was pretty close to doing it before I started the walk, but there is part of me that would rather would like to have it on a regular bookshelf. To be honest with you, yeah, um, there is part of me. So I do have that conflict going on, but part of me says it is not in too much of a hurry. I'm just wait. I, I got one or two people trying to making who have made suggestions and they're probably going to help me find a publisher. Well, I'm not in a terrible hurry, but at the same time, um, it's an incredible story if I may say so myself. And it would be a shame if they didn't see book format. Yeah, exactly. You owe it. You owe it to the people, right? <laughs> uh, you, you know, hearing you talk, one of the things that I noticed, and I've noticed this in other people who have done these long distance um, treks like this is that it just slows down your entire view of the world. You start seeing the world at a very sort of slow speed, right? You certainly do, yeah, yeah. And uh, I was, remember one particular day I was run, when I was running through Baja Peninsula in Mexico, I actually had a police escort, and I just looked around me and I said, the wildlife, the desert, the police in front and behind me, and I said, this is the stuff of other people's documentaries, and here I am living it. And I went back and I wrote on my blog that night, I have my own National Geographic television, my own Discovery Channel, 360-degree dimensional. And I carry that around the world. And uh, for my face on myself, I have this mental image of the whole world. Uh, because my world run, if you look at the map, it was pretty well connected up. There was no skips or gaps, really, nothing sizable. And I, I have my own kind of mental and video clips all the way around the world. It's an incredible way to see the world is, is on foot. Bicycle is another great way, but you still tend to be going a little bit too fast. Well, you can do that next time, right? <laughs> well, actually, uh, when I was 21, 22, I did cycle around the world, so I've kind of done it. So how, how long does cycling around the world take? That a year? took me 15 months. 15 months. 15. Was, um, the world was different then. That was 1978-79. And, and I cycled across Europe into Turkey and into Iran. And that was just more or less the time of the Iranian Revolution. The Shah was still, right. the Shah was still in power. It was Christmas 78. I crossed over the border. As soon as I crossed in, I was in Tehran. I was coming up to Christmas. And the Ayatollah Khomeini from exile in, in Paris called for civil disobedience. 
civil disobedience meant that they just closed the borders. So I was effectively stuck in Iran for six weeks and very little money. We didn't have ATM cards or credit cards, uh, we had traveler's checks. And it was a kind of, um, looking back on it, kind of a strange system. Uh, my mom had sent money to the bank in Tehran and the bank was closed because of the strike. So I was effectively stuck there with very little money. I just had a little cash sold blood plasma twice, or hung out in a backpacker's <laughs> hostel for the six weeks, just eating omelettes, bread. And eventually uh, the Shah left and the Ayatollah returned and um, the borders opened and I left, uh, cycled into Afghanistan. So um, it was a different world, but it was, it was still an incredible eye-opening experience. Yeah, well, the... Uh the British have a pretty strong expat community back then in that area. Uh, not so much now, but uh, you could always find some outposts. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We met uh, quite a few Brits and Americans um, traveling across across Asia at the time. Um, the thing is, when you're when you're walking, when you're on foot, you don't meet too many people. Only yesterday, I was on the road coming into this small Polish town, and a German guy. He was on a bicycle. He seemed to be in so much of a hurry up a mountain, and, and I was walking, taking my time, and I said, hi, where are you from? And he said, Germany, can't stop, I'm in a hurry. And I said, well, what's the point of that? You know, you don't, you don't meet too many travelers on the road when you're traveling slow. You might meet one every two, three weeks or even months. You know, the yeah. guy hadn't got yeah. time to have a chat. So yeah. he said, well, I'm from Germany, I'm in a hurry. I said, well, it's I'm from Ireland, I'm walking around the world. And he kind of looked back, oh, I don't hear that every day. And I just kept walking. I think he, he, he was a little bit sorry, to be honest with you. He didn't stop. Yeah, it's an interesting lesson for uh, the younger generation that can't really turn off the, the input uh, long enough to look around. Uh, you're going out there for years at a time on your own, walking around. So so where does this all end for you? I mean, what do you do in uh, 10 years from now? I, you know, I wonder. Do it again? I, I wonder, to be honest with you, I, I don't really know. I you. I thought about a, a motorbike, <laughs> the easy way, uh, but yeah. I still have to have some kind of a challenge. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, I thought about a train, but uh, I did take a, a train journey in Russia about six months ago, and it's it's not quite what you see on the TV documentaries going across China and Mongolia. It all looks so so exciting. You could be in the train for two days and see nothing, and it smells. <laughs> it's, filthy and whatever. So it's not quite as exotic as what you see in the TV, but it's a nice dream. So I'm going to move you towards the exit here, Tony. What what are the links? What do, what would you like people to go look at? For my world run, uh, it was uh, I called it, tongue-in-cheek, I called it the world jog, J-O-G dot com. And um, for my, my world walk, um, myworldwalk.com. All right, and you're posting your uh, your blogs up there. Oh, on see Facebook, up too. yeah. Yeah, Thanks. all right, cool. Blog. Great. Thank you very much, all, Chris. Yeah, I'll put all the links in the show notes, and uh, be safe out there. You too. And enjoy yourself. And thank, thank you very much for the opportunity. And remember, just do it. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Boston, 2016, Broken Promises, or an Honest Bunk. People who have never raced a marathon cannot comprehend 
people who haven't run Boston just can't know. How could someone as well-trained and experienced as you, they ask, totally lose it for the last few miles of the race? Did you give up? Couldn't you just grit your teeth and run through it? They will never know until they have been there. When the hills at Boston eat your legs, there is nothing you can do. There is no mind-over-matter willpower you can call on. Your legs cease to work. There is a constant slow glow of pain that permeates your body like some sort of incapacitating drug. There's no holding your pace. If you're lucky, you find a point where it doesn't hurt more, and you just keep shuffling forward. You know that finish line is up there, and it's just a matter of moving forward. You put the pain to the back of your mind, and you keep moving forward at whatever pace is possible. I had high hopes going into Boston this year. I was well-trained. I hit all my workouts. I beat my goal time comfortably at a hilly 30K and a 20-mile race. I hit all my long workouts comfortably. It was my 18th running of this prestigious race. The stars all seemed to be aligning for me. It's been a long time since I have felt this comfortable with my machine. It should have gone better. Based on the numbers going in, it should have gone better. I'm older, but I had the best training cycle in five years. I did everything right. But that's Boston. That's one of the reasons this race is hard. You never know. Training does not equal performance. I should be upset at hitting the wall so hard, but I'm not. I trained well. I respected the race. I went for it. And Boston ate me up like it has eaten me up many times. And like it has roughed up so many other well-trained athletes over the years. And that's why we're drawn to it. That's why we fear it. That's why we love it. I trained well, but I carried a lot of baggage with me into the race. It was the 18th time. We have a history. Not just a history of trading punches on Patriots Day. A history that spans two decades of qualification struggle. To understand this personal context... Perhaps a history lesson is in order. In 2008, I ran my 10th Boston Marathon and was quite ready to be done with it. But through my 40s, qualification became easier as I aged into a 330 qualification requirement without the corresponding loss in performance. I had worked very hard to qualify at 310 and 315 and 320. Then seven years ago, I turned 45, and all of a sudden, qualifying for Boston was easy. I still had to train, honestly, and commit to a good cycle, but I went from needing a 320 to needing a 330. Ten whole minutes. That's a giant chunk of time. That's an eight-minute mile. At the time, my easy run pace was around an eight-minute mile. My race paces were down in the sixes for shorter events. This was a piece of cake. I was in great shape and knocking out races of all shapes and sizes with ease. And since I kept requalifying, I just kept running the race. Why not? In 2010, I qualified easily at Boston without even specifically training for the race. In 2011, I repeated that qualification effort again. Things were looking pretty good for me running Boston indefinitely because I was going to get another five minutes in 2012. When the gun went off, for the fourth wave, 
I walked to the line in Hawkington. No need to run. No need to jog. The race starts when I cross that mat, not before. As we accelerated down out of the center, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I was able to make my way to the left shoulder, an old trick of mine, and find some open running room. Mile one was a peppy 8.15 with the traffic, and by mile two I was running 7.50s. There was a bit of chaos, there always is, in the charity corrals, people running all different paces, but nothing I couldn't manage. And one great thing about pacing faster than the pack is the race is always in front of you. I carried my bike bottle of UCAN in my left hand and was able to take fluid and fuel as I needed it. Right to plan, I was able to avoid the melee of the early water stops. I had my hokas on with my old Brooks baggy shorts with the bike liner and my Team Hoyt red singlet. And I like those shorts because they have a longer liner that prevents chub rub on hot days. They also have a couple small pockets where I can squirrel away a small tube of lube, a handful of Endurolites, and even a gel if I need one. I thought it was going to be hot, but once we got on course, we had a dry headwind of 5 to 10 miles per hour. And I think this ended up fooling a lot of runners because it didn't feel hot. But it was. That dry headwind was dehydrating people, and they didn't necessarily know it. Over the years, as development has crept in, there aren't as many trees on the course, and even if there were, it's early April, and the deciduous trees haven't leafed out yet. The bottom line is that runners were running into a dry headwind with some full sun exposure on their backs until we made the turn at the fire station. I stayed focused on my pace. I stayed away from the little kids with their high fives. No wasted effort. This isn't a fun run. This is a race. I wasn't struggling. The effort was quite comfortable. I was challenged settling in and feeling my pace. My Garmin was all over the place, and I was having a hard time finding that eight-minute mile I needed. To add to the confusion, right from the start, the mile marks were off on my watch, and they just got worse as the race progressed. My watch would go off, and I'd see the mile mark 50 to 100 meters ahead. That makes all the math hard. I felt fine. As far as I could tell from my watch, I seemed to be knocking off splits in the 745 to 755 range. I was worried that the pace was a little fast, but it was not out of the ballpark historically for me, and I felt fine. I cruised the first four-mile downhill bit, focused and ahead of pace, 817, 750, 750, 742, not too outrageously fast, but in hindsight, probably a bit of a suicide pace. I was overconfident from my training. I always do better when I go into Boston scared. Boston has a habit of humbling the overconfident. I do remember being a bit worried about the hot weather, and that may have contributed to my rabbiting. I was racing a bit hard, but I was glad to be building time into my bank if the heat got to me. In the spring of 2011, in the weeks following Boston, my heel started to really hurt. And of course I ignored it, and it got worse. By the time I finally stopped running in the midsummer, I had full-blown plantar fasciitis. The rest of 2011 I spent not running and going through treatment 
I did manage to squeeze in the Chicago Marathon with Eddie and Adam running for the diabetes team in memory of Eddie's mom, and that was a gift. When spring rolled around in 2012, I was already qualified for Boston, so I did as much training as I could, which wasn't much, because I couldn't run, and I run-walked the race. As it turns out, 2012 was a hot year. Run-walking the race was an excellent choice, but now I was out of qualification, and worse, I still couldn't shake the plantar fasciitis. By the fall of 2012, I was trying to come to grips with the potential of never running again, at least at the level I was used to. I was considering new, more invasive procedures for the plantar fasciitis. From this bottom point, I figured I really had nothing to lose, and one day decided to go for a jog in the woods with my dog. Then an amazing thing happened. Once I had let it go, running came back to me. The heel didn't get worse. I was able to start running three times a week, slowly, in the woods, and it didn't get worse. And tentatively, slowly, I began to climb back to a regular cadence and fitness level. And I got the bug to run Boston again. And since I was out of qualification, I looked around my network and found a charity bib. This was the first time I had to do this. And it never occurred to me in my wildest dreams that I wouldn't be able to qualify. My reasoning in the fall of 2012 was that I'd take a charity bib and requalify for the next year. Of course I would. As 2013 dawned and spring progressed, I began training as well as I could, having essentially taken 18 months off from marathon training. I began my relationship with Team Hoyt, the first time I had run for them, these legends and this great charity. At the same time, as slowly trying to get back into training for Boston in 2013, we found out that my father had bile duct cancer and another parallel journey began. I managed to get a short training cycle in that year, but I did not have the fitness on race day, and I had the worst race of all my Bostons, with stabbing back pain that forced me to walk. And then that day got worse. I was turned around just short of the finish line, and we all know the story of 2013. And the events at Boston took their toll on me and my community, a toll that we're still coming to grips with. April 18th, 2016, standing in the corral in Hockington in my team Hoyt singlet, I was sweating. Probably not a good sign. There was an Elvis in front of me. I turned and joked to the guy behind me that heat was energy, right? I had a lovely morning. I had planned to meet Brian for the ride up to Hopkinton, but we got mixed up, and my wife ended up dropping me at the shuttle buses. She's a good sport with all this marathon stuff. It's hard to coordinate in the morning now because I don't have my phone. I sent it ahead in my bag with our club support crew to the hotel. And that's a drawback to not having bag check in Hopkinton anymore. We hung out in Athletes Village and watched the waves get called. We had sunscreen and lube and can and towels and blankets. It was a regular Woodstock, as it usually is. I watched all my teammates get peeled away. I was in the last wave. I got to use the porta potties as many times as I wanted. It was all very relaxed and casual. 
It was a beautiful, warm spring day with brilliant blue skies. There were helicopters flying around, the state police, the news, other agencies. There were random small planes circling, dragging banners that had ads for things like liquor stores and plumbing supplies. And we thought that an odd offering to a bunch of people from around the world about to run a marathon. Damn, Brian, I forgot to pick up that boiler valve on my way to the race. Good thing that plane was here. Finally, my corral got called and Athletes Village emptied out as we queued up by wave for the walk to the start. I handed all my stuff over to the donation pile and we queued up by corral for the march down to the start. And I chatted with a guy who was running his 24th Boston and a young lady who was running her first. And ironically, I gave her the same advice we give all the first timers. Don't go out too fast. I said, you won't listen because no one does, but I'll tell you anyway. Don't go out too fast. I was able to get yet another. I was able to get yet another porta potty stop before the corrals. I would certainly not have to worry about pulling over on the course. I guess that's one of the benefits of being the last to leave Athletes Village. There were snipers standing prominently on the rooftops and throughout the town. They weren't trying to conceal themselves, which I think is what serious snipers are supposed to do. So, all for show, but a bit of a creepy prison camp vibe. I was standing behind two very attractive young women in the corral. They were in great shape, like like crossfitters. They were wearing matching outfits of tight black shorts and singlets, the epitome of youth and fitness. As I scanned up, I realized that one of them had an enormous crop of armpit hair, like she was smuggling a cat. And I don't know why I'm sharing that with you, because it makes me sound creepy, but these are the moments you remember, standing in the corral. Race day is like that, when you look back on it. A series of weird little disconnected snapshots and vignettes that roll around in your head. My life doesn't have much room in it for sitting around and feeling sorry for myself. After the 2013 race, I carried on, but I was deeply emotionally affected by those events. And this was my home. This was my race. These are my people. And I did the only thing that I knew to do that would help me clear my emotions. I ran. I ran a marathon a month through the course of 2013 to the next Boston in 2014. I ran my demons into the ground. In two instances, I ran on back-to-back weekends. Somewhere in the mix, I ran the Marine Corps Marathon with my coach, who had been diagnosed now with stage 4 prostate cancer. I was invited all expense paid to the New York City Marathon as a featured blogger by ASICS. It was surreal. I got to meet many cool folks in the big city and be treated like a rock star and rubbed elbows with the elites. And somewhere amidst all this chaos and movement, the BAA tightened the standards and changed the qualification window. They took five, actually six minutes off the time I needed to qualify. They brought the registration window back to September. I fantasized that I could run a marathon a month and still requalify, since of course that makes total sense. I had always been able to train my way into success. Why wouldn't it work now? And I came close on at least two of my marathons that summer. I ran a 334 in Vermont in May and a 332 in Idaho in August. And that would both be good enough for the old standard. 
but all those miles wore me down and I wasn't quite able to get over the hump. I was older now and my body didn't bounce back and rise to the challenge like it had 10 years earlier. A smart man, a smart person would have targeted a race and put two to three months of focused training in and qualified. But once I got into the cadence of a marathon a month, it took on a life of its own. It became like a medicine I needed every month to keep my mind and body in balance. It was the agenda and the compass for that year. And the rest of that year was not pretty, as the miles took their toll and I stopped worrying about training for the races and just ran, just ran to finish. And I knew I would automatically get a bib for 2014 because of my participation in 2013. And I was not going to miss that race in 2014. But I still kept trying to qualify because I owed it to Boston, to the community, and to myself to respect this race. In 2014, I took that 2013 Mulligan bib and decided to run for the Liver Foundation to honor my father. And he would live to see me finish the 2014 race. The Boston Marathon in 2014 was an amazing celebration. I thoroughly enjoyed it as we took back our city and our race. It was like a ceremonial release for all of us in the community. It set us free. I finished a purgative year of 13 marathons in a row, and I was exhausted, but glad to be getting off the marathon on the hamster wheel. As I ran through Ashland and Framingham in the middle miles, I held my focus and my pace. For the next 11 miles, I stayed to myself. I didn't hug the girls at Wellesley. I did pick up a fresh second bike bottle of UCAN right before the scream tunnel from a club mate who, by prearrangement, was stationed there. You know I'm serious about a race when I position my own fuel on the course. It takes a lot of stress off to know you have a fresh bottle waiting. I was consistently running in the 750s and 740s, and by the time I hit Newton Lower Falls, I had over three minutes in the bank. For those 10 miles, I averaged a 746, according to the Garmin. I felt fine. I was working reasonably hard, but I felt okay. The headwind picked up through these middle miles, and I was looking for opportunities to draft. Typically in a race, you'll fall in with a group of similarly paced accomplices, but it was hard to find someone running a consistent pace back in the pack. At one point, I found a big young guy, big young charity runner named Mike, and was able to hang on his shoulder for a bit. In retrospect, I probably left my race out in those first 16 miles by running the downhills too hard, just like I tell people not to. Classic Boston mistake. I went out too fast. As I pulled down the hill into Newton Lower Falls and looked up at Hill Zero, climbing up over Route 128, I felt the power starting to drain from my legs. After the 2014 race, I finally had some breathing room to focus on requalifying. So over the next three, four months, I trained harder than ever. I didn't race, and I singularly focused on going back out to Idaho and knocking out my qualifier in August. But something was wrong. The workouts were hard. I couldn't finish the tempo runs. I couldn't hold the paces. There was something wrong with my ability to respond to the training. And I ignored it and pulled out all the stops. I lost the extra weight. I went into the target race with as much fitness as I could fathom, and I failed. 
By the half marathon mark, I knew I was done. I couldn't hold the pace. I chalked it up to a bad day, but now I was starting to doubt myself. Maybe my qualification days were done. Maybe that 18 months of plantar fasciitis had knocked me down so far I could not climb back up. I was over 50 now. Maybe I was done. And what seemed so childishly easy three years earlier was now slipping beyond my reach, and it bothered me. But never one to waste too much time with profitless worry. I rolled the fitness forward two weeks and tried again at a race in Michigan. I had to walk off the course at the half. My heart rate would not come down. I could not hold the pace. I started to suspect something else was wrong. As I trained that autumn into fall, I began to watch my heart rate more closely. I noticed that whenever I pushed past zone two, my heart rate would spike and redline into zone six and I'd lose power. It was like having a faulty transmission where you push the gas and the gears just spin. I thought maybe my watch was broken. Eventually, I knew something was wrong, and I went, evidence in hand, to my doctor. And he said that if I thought there was something going on, then there probably was, because I knew my machine better than most people, and he sent me off to the electrocardio specialist. In the fall of 2014, I was diagnosed with exercise-induced AFib. Basically, what this means is that as soon as I started pushing the pace, my heart would generate random electrical signals and start doing the funky chicken. A result of all those races in 2013? Who knows? I'm off warranty. At yet another specialist, I was told I had two options. First, I could change my lifestyle so that it didn't include strenuous endurance sports. Or second, I could have a procedure to create scar tissue around the bits that were causing the errant signals, essentially dam them up so they wouldn't affect the heart's normal movement. You can guess what I chose. Coming up out of Newton Lower Falls, I knew I was in trouble. But I had three minutes in the bank and 10 miles left. I thought, if I can just back off a little and recover and get to the top of heartbreak, I might be able to use the downhills to close it. At mile 17, the second volunteer from my club dashed out of the crowd with a fresh bottle of UCAN for me. And I was frankly surprised she was able to pick me out of the crowd at that point in the race. I waved her off because I still had a half a bottle left and my race was failing fast. With the heat, I was a bit nauseous and had started taking water at the aid stations. Stomaching the warm UCAD was a bit of a challenge as well. Overall, I never felt dehydrated, at least not to the point of it affecting my performance. I felt like I had plenty of energy too. I got my nutrition right. Unfortunately, I outran my legs. As each hill rolled in, I knew with more conviction my race was over, and now all that was left was to get to the finish as best I could. There is no recovery in Newton. And I began to go negative. I don't deserve to be here. I'm taking a slot from someone else who could honor this race. I'm done with all this. What's the point? Deep misery and recrimination to have all those overweighted expectations crash down on me. Never do this again. I'm taking a bib from someone who deserves it. My time is gone. I'm a fake and a fraud. I don't deserve to be here. As I trudged along, feeling sorry for myself in the hills, I got a tap on my shoulder and turned to see a familiar face. My friend Mary Rowe from New Brunswick was there. I have known Mary Rowe online as a friend for many years, but we had never met in the flesh. We commiserated. She was crashing too. 
I said to her, well, since your race is done, and my race is done, how about a hug? And we stopped trudging for a brief embrace. Two friends who had never met, sharing the love of a sport and the love of a race that was gleefully punishing us yet again. As you get into the hills, the crowds start to get louder and larger. It was a great year for the spectators, a beautiful, sunny spring day. And with my Team Hoyt singlet, I would get constant encouragement. Go Team Hoyt! Go Team Hoyt! It was like a rolling wave of personal cheering section from Newton to the finish line. Looking at the 2015 race, I decided to take a charity bib again. Once I knew my heart was broken, I had to train within the bounds of my condition. This meant all long, slow runs. No speed, no tempo, no step-ups. I ended up with plenty of base fitness, but no racing ability. It was a sanguine training cycle of long, easy runs. I scheduled the heart procedure for the first week of May after the Boston Marathon, of course. Boston 215 was a cool and rainy day. That's good weather for me. I ran well, but within my ability and the constraints of my training and the AFib, there was never any real chance of me requalifying with the bad heart, but it was a good, respectful race that I was quite proud of. In May, I went into the hospital for a day and got fixed. And one week later, with my doctor's permission, I was running again. In the hills of Newton, my pace continued to drop as I tried to find a soft landing. I saw my friend Alette in the crowd at the base of Heartbreak, where she usually is. By the time I was climbing Heartbreak, I had given back my three-minute buffer. I was struggling. I was walking the water stops and taking my time to rehydrate. I refused to walk on Heartbreak Hill as people were crashing all around me. I continued to put one foot in front of the other until I got to the top. This race can beat me, but it can't make me walk Heartbreak Hill. When you crest the hill, this is the point at Boston where you want to be able to race. I could not. My legs were gone. It was just going to get worse. The downhills are no use when you've outrun your legs. They actually hurt like hell as you slam the dead meat of your thighs into the downslopes. The screaming crowds leaning over the barriers like crazed football fans trying to get at you are just another reminder of how far you've fallen and how much further you have to go. There's no hiding. Your misery is on public display. I needed a change after heart surgery in the spring of 2015. It would be 90 days until the doctors knew how well it worked. I decided the best course of action would be to train for an Olympic triathlon because, hey, that's what you do when you're recovering from heart surgery, right? It was a good decision. I spent a wonderful summer swimming and riding my bike, and the triathlon went well, and I felt strong. The 90-day follow-up on the surgery was good, the doctors said it looked like I was reasonably fixed and could now return to my previously scheduled endurance lifestyle. Rolling into the fall, another grand adventure fell into my lap. I was invited to run the prestigious Hood to Coast Relay in Oregon. I kidnapped my wife and flew into South Dakota, and we drove west for four days of travel adventure, topped off with 30 miles of a crazy 200-mile relay race in a violent storm. You can't make this stuff up. But I still wasn't qualified. The final five miles into Boston were awful. I was windburned, sunburned, 
and nauseous, and my legs were useless. I tried walking, but that didn't make it hurt any less, so I just kept up the death shuffle. There were other people in bad shape on the course. I passed a huddle of emergency personnel in the middle of the road around a fallen runner. And then I passed a blind runner with his guide and realized it was my friend Eric. And I said hi. We exchanged some words. He was having a rough race, too. With a couple miles to go, I got tapped on the shoulder again and was greeted by Sandra, the organic runner bomb, who I met at the Eastern States 20-miler. She seemed to be having a great race and ran ahead. Now, you're not supposed to meet people, especially not the people you know at this race. It's 30,000 runners and hundreds of thousands of spectators. People aren't supposed to find you in the crowd. 2016 was an odd duck that way. I must have had some sort of special aura about me. When you get there in those last miles and you're done, it's a bit of a mental challenge. When you're in those last miles, you're in pain. You just want to be finished, and you still have to drag out another hour or so to get to the end. It's endless. It's not about being brave or any of that bullshit. It's just easier to keep moving towards the finish line as best you can. Coming into this year's race, I committed to train well. I had the best training cycle I have had in five years. My heart was strong. My heel was fine. I managed to stay injury-free. I hit all my workouts. I raced at my goal pace successfully. I was ready. As the race approached, I was stressed out. It seemed like so much was riding on the results. I had built it up to a now-or-never event. I had no excuses. If I failed here, it would be a direct statement on me, on my ability, and strangely, on my worth. To the outside world, it looked like just another one of my 50-plus marathons, but to me, I had piled on four to five years of injury and failures. It loomed large. This wasn't how the script was supposed to end. I had written an entirely different ending, but sometimes we don't get to write the script. We can only play the part. I came in to the race light and strong and healthy. For the first time in years, I had no excuses, but as the weather forecast started to normalize, it looked to be a hottish day. Not hot for somebody from Arizona or Florida, but a bit hot for us northerners who had yet to don a singlet out of doors. Not hot enough to give up on the race, but hot enough to mess up the race for many. Traditional marathons theory says something like you go five seconds per mile slower in your pace for every five degrees over 65 degrees or something like that. I guess that's why I was so aggressive. I was looking to bank those five minutes. But in the end, the heat was trying, but the heat didn't get me. I saw Mary Rowe again on Hereford and Boylston Street, but I lost her in the finish. I was dehydrated, nauseous, and starting to have the shakes as I walked to the hotel, Nothing out of the usual for finishing Boston on a hot day. I pushed down two bottles of water and staggered through the crowds. I was the last person to get into the hotel, even though some of them had gone to the med tent when they finished. Everyone had gotten manhandled that day, and we all celebrated, because there's no reason not to celebrate running the Boston Marathon. And somewhere on that slow stumble to the finish and staggered to the hotel, I had talked myself down from the ledge. I trained well. I raced hard. Boston won. There's no shame in that. 
When I retrieved my phone and turned it on, it began buzzing like crazy, like some sort of live animal, with all the emails and tweets and text messages and Facebook posts. I reached out to the runners who were from out of town to see if they would still come over for a greet, but they all demurred because they had had a hard day and didn't have the energy to socialize just yet. Among all the cheering and congratulations on my phone, there was a short text from my coach. You went out too fast. It's got to be frustrating for him <laughs> to see me blow up all the hard work of a three to four month training cycle. I caught a shower and a massage and eventually made my way out to the tee to meet my wife for our traditional post-race dinner. I was happy. I should have probably backed off, but I'm not confident I would have been able to qualify anyhow. The conditions might have been too much for me. I could have got a lot closer with a negative split, but that's water under the bridge. This comeback, I'm struggling with understanding and feeling my pace, but it's progress. If it was a half marathon, I would have crushed it. <laughs> if it was a 30K, I would have nailed it. I trained honestly. I respected the race. It won. Maybe next time I'll win. We played by the rules. It was a fair fight. I brought what I had, and Boston pulled out its trick bag. We danced. I attacked. I guessed wrong, and Boston was able to spring the trap. Would I have written the ending differently for 2016? Of course I would have. Sometimes I don't get to write the endings of these chapters as much as it would suit me to. But it's a chapter. We turn the page. And we pick up the narrative of the next chapter. And the story itself never ends. It's not how many times or how long you get knocked down. It's how many times you can get back up and grin at the beast and say, well played, my friend. But is that all you have? Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, that's it. You have done the painful death shuffle to the end of episode 4-339 of the Run Run Live podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. Feel free to give me feedback, send me feedback. All this stuff is posted on my website, and you can leave comments. If you dig what we're doing here, feel free to repost the show or or share with a friend or all that other stuff. And so what's next for me? Well, well, I've decided to pivot. I was going to go up and double down at the Vermont City Marathon. I signed up for it, but I think that has changed. I've lost too much fitness. The sick kept me from training and it will probably take a couple weeks to totally get over it, and it took a lot out of me. Um, it's strange because I lost a ton of weight being sick, and you would think, not running at all, you know, so that's like, you know, 500 to 1,000 calories a day I'm not burning, but I'm still losing weight because the, the sickness just eats you up. But I'm basically out of runway for a May 30 race, and I'll probably just skip it. I have a new project, though like I don't have a new project every week. But seriously, the people from Spartan Races contacted me, and I'm angling to interview Joe, the famous owner. I didn't know they were based out of Boston, which is cool. And in general, I'm a bit of a purist when it comes to racing, and don't, you know, I don't gravitate towards these obstacle and, and feature races. But these guys actually keep score, unlike a lot of the other events. And if I do it, I'm going to take it seriously, and I'm going to compete. So they gave me a freebie. I figure it'll take some time 
to beat my skinny ass runner upper body into something that can compete at flipping tires and climbing walls, but it will be good for me. It's just what I need. There are two races at the end of July that I'm looking at, one south of Montreal, that is about a three or four hour drive for me, and one in Edinburgh, which is an interesting thought, isn't it? Then maybe, you know, spin up a serious race in the fall. I'm out to Phoenix next week, and I'm dragging my newly minted college graduate with me, and we're going to sneak off and do the canyon at the end of the week. It's strange, my life. While I was writing that Boston report up, I was looking back through the inventory of life events over the last five years, and it's it's something. It's really amazing. I always feel like I'm falling behind and not doing enough, but when you lay it all out on the floor and take a look at it, it's uh, it's something. And I'm happy I've been able to make choices and decisions that have brought me adventure and challenge and health. And I think about the roads not taken, and I wonder how much different my life, the quality of my life, and the quality of life for those in my life might be on a different path. And I'm not one to preach, but like my coach says, die with great stories, not with regrets. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Don't sacrifice your now for some unfortunate future. And thanks to antibiotics and clean living, I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Are you ready, Captain? Aye, aye, matey. Let's record. Let's record something. Let's do it. Because recording is so much fun.